Amen. A wonderful prayer for me and for us together as a church. I hope you've taken his encouragement and opened your copy of God's Word to John chapter 11. If you haven't, let me encourage you to do so or grab one of uh, the the black Bibles near you and uh, read through this story with me. We want to consider the the truths uh, of, of the Lord that have been revealed to us in these passages, but we also want to apply them to our lives. And so uh, grab a note page, grab a pen, and let's uh, consider them together. Um, We live in a day when cultural Christianity is fading fast. Amen. (laughs) I'm kind of thankful for that. Um, There are many benefits of living in a culture that was founded with many Christians as the founding fathers, but um, that has not played out well always. And even in the midst of the times in which we live, um, seeing people that claim to be Christians and not acting like it, talking like it, living like it, is frustrating. Um, It's frustrating when I do it. It's frustrating when you do it. It's frustrating when the world uh, or when the culture as a whole does it. But that time seems to be coming to, to an end. Um, we're living in a day when true worship of Christ together on Sunday as a church and worship in our everyday lives is going to stand in contrast to the world around us. And it ought to. It ought to look radically different than the world around us. Gone are the days when calling yourself a Christian at your job place received amens. And long are the days in the future when potentially calling yourself a Christian in our culture is going to receive an, oh man, just the exact opposite. People don't care anymore. You're not... um, benefited by calling yourself a Christian in our culture any, any longer. And so, uh, we as a church, we want to consider, are we going to be a Christian that is like Christ in uh, name and in word and in deed, or are we going to simply be like cultural Christianity? Uh, Being a Christian is not simply walking through a religious routine on Sunday mornings or even through the middle of the week. Religious, uh, true Christianity, authentic Christianity is not, uh, it doesn't look like religious hypocrisy that will eventually show itself in time. True, authentic Christianity is also not when the pendulum swings all the other way and looks like religious extremism. It is true. It is genuine. And so I want to urge you uh, this morning from our text to simply be a true, genuine, authentic Christian who believes that Jesus alone is able to purify and the only one worthy of pure worship. That is going to sum up this text and my sermon this morning for us that Jesus alone is able to purify and the only one worthy of pure worship. Rather than religious routine, I want you to think of extravagant worship. Rather than hypocritical lifestyle, I want you to think of 
a pure life given in worship. Rather than extremism, religious extremism, I want you to think of humble servant worship. Jesus alone is able to purify and the only one worthy of pure worship. We're going to see in our passage this morning really two, uh, a contrast between two things, the unpleasing odor of purifying works and the pleasing aroma of pure worship. And so if you have your Bible, let me uh, direct your attention to John chapter 11, where just before our passage in verse 55 occurred, uh, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And remember, upon his arrival there, Lazarus had been dead for four days. And when he asked for the stone to be rolled away, um, Lazarus's sister said, No, Lord, please don't. He's been dead for four days. In the King James, his body stinketh. There's still an odor there. Lord, don't, don't do that. The, the smell, the stench, the odor of sin, the effects of sin, and, and the stench of death were still there. She didn't want that. And yet, Jesus encouraged them to open the door. He called Lazarus out of the tomb. He walked out bound in linen strips, and he said, unbind him and let him go. And as a result, many believed in him. Many believed in the signs that Jesus was doing, whether or not they believed in the, the words and who he was at that time. Uh, it was from there that many others, though, didn't believe in him. And so they went to the council and the, the religious leaders to try to do something about it. They were unsure what, what to do, but one brother had the plan, Caiaphas. And he said, don't you realize it's better that one man would die than the entire nation perish? It's better that we kill Jesus than we lose the temple and lose our nation at the hands of Rome with this uprising of people who are believing in Jesus. And he didn't know it, but God used his evil words to prophesy what Jesus was going to do. Not just for the believing Jews, but what Jesus was going to do for people of every tribe every name, uh, nation, every tongue, and every language, gathering them in to be uh, the children of God. But uh, as a result of that, they made plans to put Jesus to death. And so Jesus no longer walked openly. He went out into the wilderness of, of Ephraim, and it's there, Jesus away from Bethany, where he raised Lazarus, out in the wilderness where our story picks up. And it says in verse 55, and if you're taking notes, this is where we'll start uh, the, that first point there, the unpleasing odor of purifying works. And we'll see this in, in the sacrifices here that are mentioned at the Passover. In verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. This is the third Passover that's mentioned in the Gospel of John. And so it means that it's Jesus' third Passover in the midst of his ministry, which is why we believe Jesus' ministry was two to three years old, uh, two to three years long uh, while here on this earth. And this is not only the third, it's the last Passover that Jesus will attend uh, while on this earth. 
And it says, John notes, uh, that at this Passover, many were going up, as, as you always go up to Jerusalem, as it is up on Mount Zion. Uh, this is why we read from Psalm 122 this morning, uh, it being a psalm of ascent. Some of the songs in the book of Psalms that the Jews would have sung as they made their way up to Jerusalem. So we read from Psalm 122 this morning. You can go and read some more of those uh, this week as, as you consider these Jews going up to Jerusalem. But they're going um, early. They're going early before the Passover to purify themselves. And they did this uh, because throughout the year, uh, they would, uh, uh, some of them would have become ceremonially unclean, um, either by uh, living in Gentile territory or even, as our story is, on the heels of the death of Lazarus, handling a dead body would have made them ceremonially unclean, according to Numbers chapter 9, verse 6, and, and other scriptures there. Um, so they were coming early to purify themselves through these religious works or this religious routine, thinking that just obeying these, this religious routine would have uh, done it in themselves, made themselves pure. And they're coming to the Passover. And if you don't know, the Passover is that famous meal from the Old Testament where uh, in the period of Israel's history, when they were in Egypt, um, God was delivering them out of slavery in Egypt. And He delivered ten plagues to them. And it was on that tenth plague on Egypt that God said He would kill the firstborn son uh, of every family. But He made a way for the family to be saved and for the angel of death to pass over, if they would take a lamb, sacrifice that lamb, and take its blood and put it on the doorposts of their home, their firstborn son would not pass away. And, and many did that, and they were saved. And, and that evening, they were released out of Egypt, and they uh, went to follow the Lord on their way to the promised land. And they were to remember that meal year after year, um, much like we as Christians, as you see before you this, this morning, see a table of bread and juice that remind us of Christ's death, uh, His body and His blood that was shed for us. They too were to remember the Passover year after year, but sadly there was a period between the judges and and King Hezekiah and King Josiah, where they just didn't. They didn't remember. They, they did what was right in their own eyes, is what the book of Judges says. And they didn't obey this Passover uh, for a season until really Josiah reestablished it. And it was this meal that had been reestablished by Josiah that even Jesus, as a child, it's, the Bible says year after year, they went up to the city of Jerusalem to offer their, their sacrifices. And what I really want us to, to make note of, that, that offering sacrifices in and of themselves 
wasn't a bad thing. It, but if done simply as a religious routine to bring about purification, the Bible is abundantly clear that it wasn't enough. That, that simply going through a routine and going through a religious work was not enough to purify one's heart or one's soul. In the Bible, Noah offered a sacrifice in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. And it says that the aroma of Noah's sacrifice was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Not that animal sacrifice is actually a pleasing aroma, but that the sacrifice done by faith, the smell of that was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, you'll see that type of language that when they, by faith, uh, obey God's word, their sacrifices are a pleasing aroma to the Lord. When they believe that God is the one that pardons and that this animal uh, as a symbol of one to come uh, is dying in their place, it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The work itself did nothing for them. It was an act done in faith that the Lord would pardon, that the Lord would forgive one day when he sends his ultimate sacrifice. David under, understood this. He knew that just going through the religious routines of his day wasn't enough, even when he fell into sin. As we sang in Psalm 51 earlier, Psalm 51 verse 10, David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. In Psalm 51 verse 17, later David writes that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The sacrifices that God wanted were not their lamb or their goat, or their bull, or just the blood itself. Not the religious works or the religious routine. He wanted their heart, a heart of faith. And so while, the plea, while an offering and a sacrifice offered in faith was a pleasing aroma to the Lord, uh, an offering or a sacrifice done simply as a religious work or a religious routine was an unpleasing odor uh, to the Lord. It was not looked upon well. It was not pleasing in the Lord's eyes. And so we have to consider uh, ourselves in our own life. Here these people are coming before the Passover to purify themselves. But when Christ came, um, He being the Lamb of God, uh, and offering his own body as the sacrifice for sins. No longer do we have to come and purify ourselves before coming to God. We come to God and he purifies us by faith through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who died in our place. And so we are living in a time after the old covenant of Passover and in the new covenant when Christ has already died, as is represented by this bread and this juice here. We, we eat not as a religious routine to purify ourselves again this week, church, 
But because we've been purified, we eat in remembrance and we proclaim what Christ has already done for us. This isn't a religious routine or work that is before you for us to participate in later, for you to wash your sins for this week and have to come back again next week. This is simply a remembrance of what Christ has done for us. And we do it as an act of worship, not as an act of religious routine. But this was the scene. And, and, and while many were coming to Jerusalem in 56, it says that they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That He will not come to the feast at all? And they said this because of 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had already given orders that if anyone knew where He was, He should let them know so that they might arrest Him. It seems obvious that John is trying to point out that these people are looking for Jesus not because of their sincere desire to, to know Him and to hear Him and to follow Him, but because the chief priests had already put out orders and had already spread the word, if you see Him, let us know. And so they're looking for Him and wondering, He's not here. Where is He? Is He not even going to come anymore? And so John sets the, the scene for what's, what's happening this week before Passover there. And that leads us then to uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where unlike the unpleasing odor of purifying works, I want you to note the pleasing aroma of pure worship. The pleasing aroma of pure worship. And we'll see in Mary's example, extravagant, pure, and humble sacrifice. Extra extravagant, pure, and humble sacrifice. John gives us this story in, in John 12. But this same story seems to be told in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 as well. Uh, here, the, the woman is, is named as Mary, but there uh, it is not. It's different, though, than the story that we read about in Luke chapter 7 that describes the acts of a sinful woman who is in a different region of Judea, uh, Judea and, and, has, and the story has a totally different bent to it. And so there's a similar story, but it's, it's different in Luke chapter 7. But Matthew 26 and Mark 14 seem to be the, the same story that's being told here with additional details. And, and let me note, additional details. They don't contradict. Uh, they add uh, uh, the, more to the story to make sure that it's, it's well-rounded. Matthew and Mark, though, place this story after Jesus' triumphal entry. So after the Sunday that we'll, we'll, we'll look at in John next week. But they write their Gospels thematically. And in fact, the language of this story in both Matthew and Mark um, insert the story there to compare it financially to Judas's uh, desire to betray Jesus for simply 30 pieces of silver, saying that that is quite different than what Mary did a week before in um, anointing Jesus 
with an oil and a perfume that cost 300 denarii. And so while it may be in a different place in Matthew and Mark, realize that I think that's thematically why it's there while John is giving us the chronology where he even says six days before the Passover, which would place this on Saturday night before the triumphal entry on Sunday morning. And so six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Remember, remember he was out in Ephraim in the wilderness because he was not walking openly anymore because they were trying to put him to death. But he was coming back to Bethany, making his way to Jerusalem for the last time. And he went to where Lazarus was. Matthew and Mark tell us that this was at Simon the leper's house. There was a large community dinner there, and Lazarus was there, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was the one reclining with him at table. Uh, Martha is regularly seen as the one serving in fact, was upset with her sister in one story because her sister was sitting at the feet of Jesus and said, Jesus, won't you make her serve with me? And Jesus said, she's doing what is better while I am here with, with her. But we regularly see Martha serving and Martha busy doing that. We see Lazarus reclining uh, at table eating. And can you blame him? I mean, this brother had just been dead for four days and had already had his last meal. Not sure when his second last meal is going to be, and so I'm going to give this brother the benefit of the doubt. He's enjoying a meal, living every day like it's his last, reclining at table there. Um, but Mary, it mentions in verse 3, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary is highlighted in this story. It's, it's her extravagant and pure and humble sacrifice that is highlighted and emphasized in this passage. In contrast with the Jews that were coming to Jerusalem, even in contrast with Martha and Lazarus and their actions at the dinner. Mary is the one highlighted. And in fact, Jesus notes in Matthew and in Mark that what she did will be told to every generation afterwards. And the fact that we're reading this is proof that Jesus' words have, have come true in that. But I, I want us to note uh, just some things about Mary's anointing of Jesus. Um, John tells us that Mary had a pound uh, of expensive ointment. Uh, literally, it was about 11 or 12 ounces. So imagine a, a can of Coke or a can of Dr. Pepper uh, that you would have. This is what she had. And Matthew and Mark tell us it was in an alabaster flask, a flask that would have been sealed shut and had to be broken to be able to be opened to be used uh, at that time. And so she's got this, uh, this extravagant amount uh, of, of perfume. Um, it's noted emphatically that it's pure, uh, that it is from pure nard, which would have been a, a root from a plant in India uh, that had 
a wonderful smell, and, and it was rare. It was expensive because it, it was so rare. It became this extremely costly perfume. Judas later notes that it was worth 300 denarii, and if you can imagine a denarii is worth a day's wages, this is essentially worth an entire year's salary. So I want you to take that number in your mind and plan on writing that kind of a check to uh, the church. No. You know, but imagine. I mean, that takes some intentionality, doesn't it? To have prepared for something like that. It takes some sacrifice to be willing to let it go and to pour it out in that moment. But that's what we're talking about. This is a a costly, uh, rare, extravagant gift. This kind of perfume is not, not normal. This is not your Chanel or Calvin Klein that you could get just anywhere. I mean, this is the most... And I looked up some perfumes. This is like beyond the Roya perfume, which cost $3,500 for 3.5 ounces. This blows that out of the water. This is an extravagant, significant gift. And, and what's highlighted, both in the passage before, the people coming to purify themselves and Mary offering this pure sacrifice is representative of her pure worship to the Lord. It's representative of, of her pure heart that had been purified by the Lord. And we ought to consider whether or not our life, whether or not our words, whether or not our actions are representative of uh, the purity of our heart as well. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I believe Mary's heart was abundantly pure at this point, believing in Jesus Christ and worshiping Him. And her her extravagant, pure gift there was representative of that. First John, John later writes in his first letter in chapter 3, verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in Him, that is Jesus, purifies Himself as He is pure. You see, it's, we are purified when our faith and our hope is in Christ who Himself is pure. And then we offer ourselves and we offer everything that we have uh, as an act of worship, a pure act of worship. But not only did she offer this extravagant and pure and uh, sacrifice and offering to, to Christ, she did so in the utmost humility and devotion. Look at what it says at the end of verse 3. Uh, uh, at the end of that sentence, she anointed the feet of Jesus. John's highlighting here what Matthew and Mark um, tell differently. They say that, he, that she anointed his head, and she likely did both, both his head and his feet, for she had enough. But John is highlighting Mary anointing his feet because in, in another chapter, just one more chapter later, it'll be Jesus 
who kneels down and washes the feet of his disciples. John is trying to highlight the humility that Mary has now, humbling herself before Jesus to worship him. But also her devotion. It says that she wiped his feet with her hair, which was an an act of submission as she knelt down and was, was willing to use even her own hair to wipe the fragrance and, and clean his feet and wipe it from his, from his feet. And it goes on to say that the house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. When she knelt down, it just describes her utmost humility and her utmost devotion to Jesus. And we would do well to remember a verse like Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when this story started with offering sacrifices, animal sacrifices to purify oneself by faith at, at the Passover. And now it's transitioned to Mary offering this costly perfume as her humble act of worship to Jesus. Romans chapter 12 Verse 1, Paul urges us, appeals to us, therefore, he says, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And he urges, he commands even, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, Mary's humility and devotion and offering at this time was representative of her laying down her life before the Lord Jesus. She was willing to lay, lay it all down. Uh, I was reminded in just that word um, her utmost humility and her utmost devotion was reminded of uh, probably one of the most famous devotionals uh, ever written, My Utmost for His Highest, written by a man named Oswald Chambers, who um, was an atheist when he went into college, though he was raised in a Christian home, and he came to saving faith and used his life for the furtherment of the gospel, was even commissioned as a YMCA missionary to take the gospel to Egypt in the midst of World War I to uh, preach the gospel to troops there in Egypt. And he, uh, after his death, his, his death at age 43, by the way, which uh, turned 43 this year, was uh, a good reminder to me to even live all of my days for, for the Lord in utmost devotion to Him. Uh, after his death, his wife took Um, many years of devotions and sermons and put them into this devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. And in his very first devotional, if you have it, you can read this on day one, January 1st. It's a response to Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul writes, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die 
is gain. And this is what Oswald writes about that verse. We all feel very much ashamed if we do not yield to Jesus the areas of our lives he has asked us to yield to him. It's as if Paul were saying, my determined purpose is to be my utmost for his highest, my best for his glory. To reach that level of determination is a matter of the will, not of debate or of reasoning. It is absolute and irrevocable surrender of the will at that point. An undue amount of thought and consideration for ourselves is what keeps us from making that decision. Imagine if Mary were to think about it. Is this really the wise decision? I mean, I, let's consider. I mean, mm -mm. It's a matter determined by the will as the Lord is leading you to do that. Um, an undue amount of thought and consideration for ourselves is what keeps us from making that decision, although we cover it up with the pretense that it is others that we are considering. When we think seriously about what it will cost others if we obey the call of Jesus, we tell God He doesn't know what our obedience will mean. Hmm. Keep to the point, He does know. Shut out every other thought and keep yourself before God in this one thing only. My utmost for His highest. I am determined to be absolutely and entirely for Him and Him alone. I think that's what was on Mary's mind that, that, that day, that evening at that dinner. She wanted everything she had, her utmost, to be laid at the feet of Jesus for His highest honor, for His highest glory. She was willing to give a year's wages to be able to pour over the head and the feet of Jesus in that moment in an, in an act of devotion and worship. And the house was filled with the smell. Just think of what, just think of the impact of this one worshiper had on the entire household. It was only her that did this, and yet everyone at the table, everyone in the house um, was impacted by that one decision. So too, you, if you choose to live your life in that type of way, will impact those around you. Your life, just like this act, was a pleasing aroma to Christ. Your life too could be a pleasing aroma to the Lord rather than the foul odor of sin and death. Paul urges us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love, he says to the church. As Christ loved us, and He gave Himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus gave up His very life on the cross as a fragrant offering to God for you. Why would you, having received the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ, not then willingly lay down your entire life for His namesake as a pleasing aroma to the Lord? This is what Paul gets at in 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, but thanks be to God. Chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us, listen, 
spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Why? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, the fragrance from death to death, but to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Christian, let me urge you to consider whether or not your life is being lived as a pleasing aroma to the Lord, as a laying down your life as a pleasing act of worship to Him, that your life is lived as pure worship rather than routine works to purify yourself. Consider whether your private life or your public life. Consider whether your, your home life or your work life. Consider what you're spending or what you're watching is looking like. Every bit of your life is to be used for your utmost for His highest. You're living your life for His honor and His glory. Consider, is there any area of your life that's not a pleasing aroma that's done in pure worship to Christ, but instead is that unpleasing odor of sin and death? And if so, get rid of it. Do whatever it takes. I don't have time to tell you, but I have a story to tell about doing whatever it takes to get the smell out of your house this week. And if you had that smell, you would do it too. Do whatever it takes to get rid of whatever unpleasing odor you might have uh, of sin in your life so that your life might be a pleasing aroma to the Lord following Christ's example and a pleasing aroma to others, pointing them, drawing them in to who Christ is. I promise the last two won't take long because that's where the emphasis was in that. But I want to note to you last couple closing things. Note this then. Another example of an unpleasing odor of purifying works we see in... um, Judas, and we see in him not uh, religious routine, but religious hypocrisy in 12, 4 through 8. After Mary's example in verse 3, verse 4 says, But, but Judas, but Judas, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, if you know the story, if you don't, and you're reading it for the first time, John's letting you in on something that's coming. Uh, he said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now John explains what he knows in hindsight uh, later on. John's writing this much longer after this event happened, after Jesus died, after he rose, uh, after he ascended. John's looking back on th- that thinking, he didn't say that because he was holy and wanted to care for the poor he said that because he wanted the money and things were beginning to make sense to John later on and being inspired by the Holy Spirit he wrote that down for us hindsight for John was 2020 looking back on 
on these things. And so he tells us in verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. John is tying Judas to the thief of John 10 who came to steal, kill, and destroy, or the hired hand who will not stay with the sheep and the flock when the threat comes in, but will run the other way, leaving the flock alone. John is contrasting Judas then with Jesus who stands in the gap. You you can almost picture Judas threatening Mary uh, at that point and and Jesus, Jesus standing between Judas and Mary and saying, no, you don't. Look at, what she, look at what he says. Jesus said, leave her alone that she might keep it for the day of my burial. I don't think it's that Mary actually uh, was prophesying, if you will, through this act that Jesus was going to die and she was doing this as an act uh, uh, of burial for him or anointing his body. But like Caiaphas's words, were used by God to predict and prefigure His death. God is using Mary's action here to prefigure His coming death uh, in the future. And then He likens and alludes to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, where He says, uh, where Deuteronomy says that you should care for the poor. But but Jesus says, for the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Essentially saying, under normal circumstances, yes, be generous, sacrificial, give to the poor, meet the needs of those who can't care for themselves, especially the orphan and widows, Jesus' brother James would say later on as an act of pure worship. But while I am with you in this moment, these are not normal circumstances, and this is good, and this is right. And this is an act of her pure worship there. You see, Judas and his religious hypocrisy showed itself in time. It doesn't always show itself, though, immediately. People can fool you for a while and being hypocrites for a time. But in time, that will be found out either by us in time or by the Lord. But it'll be found out in the end. And we have to trust the Lord with that. We have to continue to to walk in obedience. But there's an encouragement. There's a warning here not to live your life, not only in should you not live it in religious routine, but you also shouldn't live it in religious hypocrisy. If your life shows one thing on Sunday morning and says one thing on Sunday morning and says a very different thing Sunday afternoon or Monday morning or Saturday night, I want to encourage you to repent and to turn back to Christ who forgives, to turn to one another to help you in the midst of those moments that your life might be more like Christ, that you might worship Him in spirit and in truth, that, that we need to realize that, that hypocrisy is not an act of worship to the Lord. Only what's done in pure worship to the Lord. 
one of the commentators that I read this week, he noted that faith and devoted discipleship triumph over religious observance and works. And that's true. We see that in Judas's life. But the last thing I want you to note is the unpleasing odor of purifying works as seen in the religious extremism in 9 through 11. Uh, as a result of not only Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and coming towards Bethany, but also the fact that Lazarus was walking and talking, uh, it says in verse 9 that a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, there in Bethany at this dinner. And they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. It's like killing two birds with one stone. You always wanted to see Jesus, but you also get to see Lazarus as well. And so, yeah, they're leaving Jerusalem. And they're going out to Bethany to, to see this, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. And so, as a result, the chief priests made plans to not only put Jesus to death, as they had done so earlier, but to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Uh, Christian, you, you need to realize that if you're going to follow Jesus, and if you're going to worship him in the way that Lazarus and in the way that Mary were worshiping him this day, you too are going to face the same types of persecution. You too are going to face the same types of battles that Jesus him, himself uh, was fighting by those who are, in one sense, religious extremists, um, trying to put to death those who were true followers of, of Jesus in the time, trying to silence uh, the gospel, trying to silence the Christ followers at that time. You need to realize John is going to point this out with Jesus' words later in John chapter 15. In verse 18 through 25, let me encourage you to go and read this this week. Maybe you read it together in your, in your small groups. Um, but but John and G records Jesus' words there that, that we too are going to face the same things. That if Jesus Himself was hated, then we too are going to be hated by this world. We need to consider that. We need to consider that while Jesus said, blessed are the pure, for they will see God, He also said, blessed are those who are persecuted uh, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We need to realize that, that we too will follow, follow suit in Jesus' steps if we're to follow Him. I, I want to encourage us and remind us that Jesus really is abundantly worthy of anything that you could imagine or think to give Him. Whether it is a, a gift of that significance to the church, to support missions, to, to feed the poor, to care for the needy, whether it's the amount of time on your calendar, whether it's uh, the amount of devotion to seek to know Him as He has revealed Himself in His Word, um, whether it's to serve the church 
there's no amount you could serve. There's no amount of money that you could give. There's no amount of time that you could set aside that would be seen as too much. For in the end, when you stand before the Lord Jesus uh, on that day, you will realize that what you gave was actually not enough for what he deserves. And so let me encourage you to be extravagant, be pure, uh, be humble in your worship of the Lord. Don't fall into the trap of American cultural Christianity in the buckle of the Bible belt that, that says that religious routine is enough. It's not. That religious hypocrisy is okay. For you, you once were a member of a church or once were baptized or you gave on... It's not. And religious extremism isn't, isn't true worship as well. But to follow Christ, to worship Christ, to lay down your life as a spiritual act of worship is what He calls us to do. There are countless examples uh, that, that, that you could find of Christians in this church, Christians throughout history th that are an encouragement to you. Just go and read the uh, missionary examples of people like Adoniram and Ann Judson. Go read the, the sacrifices of missionaries who gave it all, even their very own lives, for the sake of sharing the gospel and being a pleasing aroma to the Lord and to others amongst them. And in the end, they found that even that was worth it, uh, even not enough when they stood before the Lord Jesus. Let me encourage you, Christian, uh, to give everything, for he is worthy of us giving everything to him. But only when we actually give everything he asks will we actually find he's actually worth it in the end. And if you've yet to, to realize that Christ is worthy of all honor and all glory, just look to what he has done for you. Um, not requiring you to offer an animal sacrifice, but he, as John the Baptist noted, the Lamb of God was willing to give his own body and shed his own blood so that you didn't have to give an animal or even give your own life for the forgiveness of your sins. And he died in your place as your substitute so that you could spend eternity with him having repented of your sins and believed in him. Trust him this morning and spend the rest of your days learning what it looks like to worship like Mary worshiped in this passage. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to see your Son, Jesus, as worthy of all honor and all glory and the only one who is able to purify our souls from sin and to offer us life rather than death. Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice that you made that we are going to remember this morning through what we call the Lord's Supper. Jesus, I pray that you would be honored in this first act of faith and obedience and worship after hearing your word. And may you be honored and glorified as we go out from this place, receiving whatever um, gift, time, devotion, um, that these uh, 
um, brothers and sisters of yours, Jesus, give to our Father in heaven. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.